have questions and God's Word has answers. In these special messages, it is my goal to answer tough questions that members of God's family have regarding life, ministry, scripture, and theology in a general sense. While I pray that these are a blessing and a help to you, I would encourage you in no way to think of online messages to serve as a sufficient replacement for faithful fellowship with and as a local body of believers. Find a church that declares the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with unfiltered and unadulterated faithfulness and get plugged in there. These messages serve as an extension of the pulpit ministry of Mount Carmel Baptist Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky, where I serve as the lead pastor. If you don't have a local church, we would love to welcome you for His glory. There is a seemingly insatiable fascination with the spiritual realm. Romans 1 is playing out before our very eyes, people starving for truth and for something beyond this world. After all, if this is all there really is, then what's the point? Why pay taxes, go to work at jobs most of us don't put on our pom-poms about, and go to doctor's appointments just to be, lay, just to be told to lay off the food that we actually do enjoy? If this is it, why does any of it really matter? Romans 8, 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, writes in Romans of the literal groaning that all creation joins in on as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, that is, the second advent, the return of the risen and victorious Lord Jesus Christ, for the gathering of his people, his bride. If you don't believe me that there is a seemingly insatiable fascination with the spiritual realm in our day, just do a quick Google search for demonic movies. You'll find these just to name a few. Pray for the devil. That's P-R-E-Y, pray as in a victim. I trapped the devil. The Conjuring. Megan, a recently released and very popular film. And Legion. But that's not all. How about demonic video games? Demon Slayer, Devil May Cry, The Cult of the Lamb, Helltaker, Book of Demons. It's interesting that for all the talk of hatred against God that the culture spews, it certainly has a fascination with the demonic and angelic beings. But this poses a great danger. Do you not think that the devil, who is a liar and the father of all lies, would not use this fascination as an opportunity to create his own narrative? God has his book, and so the devil would very much like to have his own book, because his first sin was jealousy of God and a failed attempt to usurp God's throne as his own. This being the case, the world would love to write for us what we are to believe about the demonic realm, but we have some work to do. We need to draw our conclusions about such things, indeed about all things, from God's inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word. And so in today's message, our first message in a series I'm titling Tracking the Truth, I want to speak regarding demon possession. And I want to speak on this from various texts. The first point is clearing the bramble from John 9. Point 1, clearing the bramble, John 9. If you've ever been hunting, then you know that the first thing you need to do is find your spot. 
Find a place where the animals roam, where you can get a good shot, where you can blend in well with the surroundings. But oftentimes, you'll need to clear away the bramble. Maybe you have the perfect spot up in that oak tree just inside the tree line. You have a perfect view of the open field where the deer frolic and, pet and play. But you haven't been there since last hunting season. And there in front of your tree stand has grown a small mulberry bush. It is blocking your view. You need to clear it before you have a clear shot at your target. Such is what I want to do before we get too far into our discussion regarding demon possession. First, I want to clear away the bramble to help give some clarity to the false teachings we so often are inundated with by those of the Word of Faith movement or the charismatic circle. They would have us believe that it is always God's will to bring healing. Further, any time that the healing does not come, we should wonder if we are being attacked by the devil or if God is punishing us for our lack of faith, so they say. What's of particular interest to me is that the very same ones who preach that we should not fear think just about every song on today's popular Christian music stations, they're the same ones telling us that we should always be wondering. This is because of a fundamental misunderstanding of spiritual warfare, sovereignty, and soteriology. So let me take each of these in turn. Spiritual warfare. Let me begin by saying that it is to much, much to our shame that many Baptist pulpits fail to speak on spiritual warfare as frequently as we should. If the text suggests that spiritual warfare should be discussed, so it should be discussed. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, that he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul says that he wasn't a coward. He didn't shrivel up when opposition came. He didn't shy away from declaring the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He declared whatever God gave him, and so we should declare all that God has given us in his word, including spiritual warfare. But we should not we should understand rightly what it is that we are aiming to declare. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we need to understand that God's word tells us that what God's word tells us is reality. In Revelation 12 and 20, we read of the cosmic battle that took place between human hum, before human history and heaven between God and Satan. The devil attempted to usurp God's authority and God cast him and his fallen angels out of heaven, binding them under his authority. We are told in Ephesians 6 verse 12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so, we must wholeheartedly affirm that there is a cosmic battle going on. But, we must also wholeheartedly deny that this battle is somehow a neck-and-neck -neck battle, as though God and Satan were fighting for the upper hand and one could win at any moment. This cosmic battle is not akin to the Kentucky Derby. It is a spiritual war that has already been won. The events of human history have already been recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life and Death, and only Jesus, the Son of God, has authority to open the scrolls, according to Revelation 5-7. through In the Proto-Evangelion, the first mention of the Gospel, we see a promise that the serpent had bruised the son's heel, but the son would crush the serpent's head. Such was the case on Calvary's cross. So, while we are in a spiritual battle, the victory has already been won on our behalf. This is, after all, why we sing with such triumphant joy on Sunday mornings. I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's Atoning, then I repented of my sins and won 
the victory. O victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing, how he made the lame to walk again and caused the blind to see. And then I cried, Dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. And might I add that the way that Jesus brought that victory to us was looking back on Calvary's cross. Second, sovereignty. This brings us to our second often misunderstood reality, God's sovereignty. You see, God isn't at risk of losing his power to anyone, not to man, not to demons, not to Satan himself. Nothing and no one can overpower our God. To think that such a thing could happen is, according to Psalm 115 and Psalm 135, a laughable fallacy. Because God is sovereign, that is, completely powerful in himself and needing no outside help or source, he bids us to come to him in all of our weakness. In City of Light's song, Known in Love, we read these lyrics. If you have seen my weakest moments and still you love me even then, I need no greater confirmation that God, your goodness, has no end. Might I add to these lyrics that God has seen us in our weakest moments. And not only does his ability to love us and save us show his love, but also his great power. Power to overcome the deepest sin. Power to heal and forgive. Power to overcome the devil. Finally, there is amongst the Word of Faith peddlers a fundamental misunderstanding regarding soteriology, that is, the doctrine and study of how we get saved. They believe that salvation is hinged upon man's decision. Salvation is, to them, a synergistic act, God and man working together. Reformed theology, however, rightly understands salvation to be monergistic, that is, a single-handed act of God on behalf of man in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't just a hobby horse of mine that makes its way into every message, a talk of soteriology. I am certainly passionate about this discussion, but it's important to our understanding of demonic possession. The Word of Faith movement believes that salvation is hinged upon man, and therefore the keeping of such salvation is likewise hinged upon our works. If we aren't good enough, we lose it. Of course, there's the obvious issue of our utter inability to ever be good enough. If I could lose my salvation, I would a million times over. But there's more to this issue. They believe that if true believers allow the devil any kind of foothold, it opens the door for the devil to come in and take up residence within the soul of that believer. 1 Corinthians 6.19 refers to the believer's body as the temple, or the residence of the Holy Spirit of God. John 20, verse 22 shows us that believers receive the Holy Spirit, who, according to John 14.26, was sent by Jesus to be the helper and teacher of his people. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 1.14 tells us that the Holy Spirit lives or dwells within believers. Now, I don't know where you stand in your theology, but my understanding of God is that He is a sovereign God who has already paid it all. He doesn't lose what He has paid for, and Jesus Himself says exactly that in John 6 verse 39. Jesus keeps those who are truly His, and any so-called lost salvation is not evidence of the devil gaining a foothold. It is evidence that you never had salvation in the first place, according to 1 John 2, verse 19. Now, many 
word of faith peddlers will cause confusion by saying that every ailment is because of sin. Jesus flat-footedly disagrees, and Jesus trumps Joel Osteen. Consider with me John 9 verses 1 through 12. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others kept saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So let's clear the bramble out of the way so we can get a clear shot at a meaningful discussion on demonic possession and physical, mental, or spiritual ailments. Jesus plainly says here that the man born blind was not born blind because of his sins or his parents' sins. He was born blind for this moment when Jesus healed him. Again, God is sovereign. He does as he pleases. He does everything for his glory and for the good of his people. Was it not better for this man to live half of his life physically blind so that in this moment he might be given spiritual sight? Not only did he receive spiritual and physical sight, but the gift of this man's physical sight was the means by which Jesus stirred up gospel conversations for those who witnessed what Jesus did. Do you see that? So there's a lot to unpack here. But the main thing I want us to see in this for now, in John 9, is that Jesus affirms that not all ailments are necessarily due to some particular sin. All ailments are a result of the fall in man's sinful condition, as we see in Genesis 3. However, ailments cannot always be blamed on some direct sin and correlating punishment or possession. Instead, God is sovereign and ordains whatsoever comes to pass for his good pleasure. Simply put, I really think we need to stop giving the devil so much credit. Point two, the cause of brokenness, Genesis 3. You will remember the story of the fall of man in Genesis 3. The sin that Adam and Eve committed was not just that they ate a fruit. It was that they disobeyed God, trying to become like God. They wanted to know what God knows. At the end of Genesis 3, we see God's common grace on display. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. God said that man came to a knowledge of good and evil. That is to say that man became aware that rebellion was an option, and he would chase after such rebellion with full force. 
and in so doing, man subjected himself to a futility of thinking. This is what is known by theologians as the noetic effects of sin. This is not to say that human beings cannot think, but our thinking is flawed. Our entire ability to function and think properly or uprightly was in that moment corrupted by sin. Work was made laborious, childbearing was made increasingly more painful, thinking was made tumultuous as we have always before us the knowledge of right and wrong, good and evil, and the coinciding choices of deciding between the two when acting and speaking. There are many different illnesses and ailments mentioned in the Bible. Many of them afflicted people who were healed by Jesus during his earthly ministry. Mark 5 details for us some sort of menstrual complication a woman experienced. Mark 1, Jesus heals a leper who was crawling on his knees, likely due to the severity of the disease and its ravaging effects on his physical body. In Mark 2, Jesus heals a paralytic who can't walk. In Matthew 9, Jesus heals a mute man, one who cannot speak, who was also possessed by a demon. In Exodus 4, verse 11, God declares himself as being the one who makes the man mute or blind or deaf. And in Mark chapter 5, uh, we see that Mark speaks of a man who was not right in his mind due to demonic possession, but Jesus heals him. The point is that we see examples of physical ailments, of mental concerns, and of course of spiritual disorder all throughout Scripture. These all have a variety of different circumstances surrounding them. Some happened at birth, some for several years, some from demonic possession. But all of them are determined and or allowed or ordained by God's perfect plan and sovereign hand. Our minds are held captive by devilish thoughts unless and until they are made to be held captive by godly thoughts. And if God should pass over the enlightening of the eyes of someone's heart, it is because they are not of his, as he makes clear in John 10. But what do we do with the noetic effects of the fall regarding the condition of the mind? Effects of the fall, such as autism, seizures, limited capacity functionality, Down syndrome, inability to speak or see, and the like. The first thing we do with them is go back to Exodus 4, verse 11, understanding that it is God who is the one who divinely and perfectly ordains and crafts the body to his good pleasure. Think with me of Psalm 139, verses 13 through 14. For you, being God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. The words used here literally mean that God knit us together. He gave close attention to every intricate detail, every brain cell, every skin molecule, every hair, every organ, every blood cell, every vein, every artery. He crafted you. He gave you life and sustains your life in this very moment. You don't have to force yourself to breathe. You don't have to tell your brain neurons to travel from your hands to your brain to tell your brain what you feel. You don't have to force your blood to pump out from your heart into your veins to provide your extremities with nutrition. You don't tell your eyes to see. You don't have to muster up the strength to activate your larynx and speak. And you most certainly are not an autopilot, just casually coasting through life with your body doing it all for you. But God is orchestrating the whole thing. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 tells us, By Him, that is, by Jesus, by Christ, by Him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the first thing we need to do is give credit where credit is due. It doesn't matter if it's autism or cancer or unknown and untreatable ailments or blindness or Down syndrome or tragic accident leading to limited brain functionality. God made you. He planned every day for you, having written them as with an iron pen in his Lamb's book of life and death. And he has ordained it all. And there's not a maverick molecule, a pointless problem, an inconsequential issue, or a capricious condition. All of it, all of it, is crafted by God to his glory and for your good, even if you don't see it as such now. I'm reminded of the old hymn that says, Tempted and tried, we're oft made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long, while there are others living about us, never molested, though in the wrong. When death has come and taken our loved ones, it leaves our home so lonely and dreary. Then do we wonder why others prosper, living so wicked year after year. Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brother. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. And so while we don't have eyes to see clearly now, we will see clearly once we are on the other side of glory what Jesus was doing with all of our suffering. And so the first thing that we need to do is understand that it is God who is sovereign over it, that it is God who perfectly ordains whatever condition you may be facing, that it is not always the devil who is uh, possessing someone, but that it is God who is planning things for our good and for his ultimate glory. Second, finally and briefly, we need to do away with this false notion that everything has to do with demons and punishment. Yes, there is a spiritual war for the soul. Yes, there is the reality of demonic possession for those outside of Christ and who have given themselves wholeheartedly to the devil. Yes, there is the reality that God may subject his children to seasons of punishment or discipline for our good, according to Hebrews 12. Yes, God is just and equitable. He will pour out his wrath, according to Romans chapter 2, upon those who do not place their faith and trust in him, repenting and believing in him to the salvation of their souls. Yes, all of that is true. But, no, it is not true that spiritual warfare always necessarily looks like ailments and diseases. No, it is not true that true believers can be demon-possessed, because we are spirit-possessed. And no, it is not true that God abandons his children. So what about those who die in infancy? Or who never have the full capacity to understand the gospel? Is there a such thing as an age of accountability? The Bible makes no such claims. In 2 Samuel 12, we see the story of David's child's death. David is confident that he will see his child again in heaven, but this is not attributed to some knowledge of God overlooking his child's inability to come to a knowledge of saving faith. Instead, it is, a trust in the, it is trusting in the sovereign election of God that those who die in infancy or those who are unable or incapable of understanding to full capacity the gospel that God has elected them unto salvation. Spurgeon said, As for modern Calvinists, I know of no exception, but we all hope and believe that all persons dying in infancy are elect. Article 17 of the Canons of Dort suggests, Since we are to judge the will of, of the will of God from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but in virtue of the covenant of grace, in which they, together with their parents, are comprehended, 
Godly parents have no reason to doubt of the election and salvation of their children, whom it pleases God to call out of this life in their infancy. B.B. Warfield spoke on this, saying, Their destiny is determined irrespective of their choice, by an unconditional decree of God, suspended for its execution on no act of their own, and their salvation is wrought by an unconditional application of the grace of Christ to their souls, through the immediate and irresistible operation of the Holy Spirit prior to and apart from any action of their own proper wills. And I would submit to us that what has been written on infants and their election based upon God's good pleasure should also likewise be applied to those with limited functionality. In these realities of God's sovereign grace, we can find the great comfort for the soul. The doctrines of grace afford us this comfort. And so in closing, I would encourage you to study this deeper as opportunity allows. There is much more that could be said, and I would recommend you look for trusted teachers' messages on this subject. Dr. John MacArthur has spoken much on this, as has Dr. Sproul. I'm sure that there are many others whose teachings on the subject will prove to be, to be a help to you. And most importantly, I ask you to search your heart, examine yourself. Are you in the Lord, or are you simply interested in head knowledge that such studies offer? My prayer is that any study efforts you pursue will increase not only your knowledge of God, but also, and more importantly, your love for God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is sufficient for us and that your word provide answers where we do not yet have them within ourselves. And Lord, we thank you for your son, that your son was sent to break every stronghold, to save sinners from the depths of our depravity. And Lord, we thank you for your spirit, that you sent your spirit to be the one who would dwell within your children so that there would be in his dwelling within us no more room left for the indwelling of demonic possession and worldliness. And Father, we ask that you would help us to trust in your word, to obey your Son, and to live a life for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.